Welcome to Mudrooms, a community storytelling event that, in normal times for the past nine seasons, has been presented before a live audience in Juneau, Alaska, and recorded for broadcast on KTOO 104.3 FM, as well as prepared in podcast form. I'm David Noon, one of your co-hosts for the next hour. For our 10th season due to the COVID-19 pandemic, We've trimmed down our schedule to three events and have asked our seven presenters to record their stories in the comfort of their own homes, which means, among other things, that season 10 of Mudrooms is fully pet-friendly. Each season, we also select a few local beneficiaries, organizations to whom we donate our event admission fees. Obviously, the pandemic has interrupted that practice as well, but the beneficiary for this episode of Mudrooms is Juno Co-op Preschool, located in downtown Juno. If you would like to make a donation to the Juno Co-op Preschool, please visit their website, junopreschool.org, where you can make a contribution via PayPal or find their address and mail them a check. All donations are tax deductible. We look forward to the prospect of returning to live and, sadly, pet-free events next fall. But in the meantime, my co-host Jeff Smith and I are pleased to introduce a selection of tales that orbit tonight's theme, Keep Your Distance. Our first storyteller is Luke Vroman. Luke spent his formative years in Washington State and has lived in Juneau and other parts of Southeast Alaska on and off for the past eight years. Mr. Vroman works for the Glory Hall, Juneau's shelter and soup kitchen, and for him, the importance and significance of this work stems from firsthand experience with homelessness, substance abuse, and incarceration. Luke is an advocate for breaking down the stigma associated with these issues and bringing together people for both individual and community wellness. In an effort to further bulldoze barriers built by stigma, Luke candidly tells a piece of his truth. This is his first time telling a story at Mudrooms. Hey there, my name's Luke, and for the story I'm about to tell you, you'll need to know that I'm a recovering drug addict. I grew up in Western Washington, and I'm from a well-to-do family. My dad's a lawyer, and I'm the youngest of three. All of us were good and high-achieving kids. My childhood was somewhat unique, though. I was a theater kid. When I was six, my somewhat intense mother decided she wanted to be a stage mom, so she started taking me to Seattle to audition for theater companies. It turns out I was decent at it, and with some quick success when I was seven, I joined Actors' Equity, the Stage Actors' Union. From age six to about 16, I worked all over in all sorts of productions and on tours, and when I was 14, my income even broke six figures. Essentially, as a child, I had a full-time job. I bring this up because while I did learn some incredible things and had amazing experiences in the theater, I also probably learned some things that maybe weren't quite so healthy. For one, I was usually the only kid in a room full of artsy and often dysfunctional adults. And in my teen years, the lack of supervision and ready access to cash presented an unprecedented opportunity for some pretty hard partying. 
By the time I was 18 and ready to head off to college at NYU, my education plans took a major dive when without ever even having had a driver's license, I got my third DUI. Legally, I couldn't even leave the state. So I enrolled at the University of Washington and joined the theater and communications program there. It sounds all right, but my downfall was well on its way. College is a time when other young people are discovering who they want to be and ramping up for their big breaks. My professional and personal identity was beginning its rapid decline into crisis. This is when I realized that I had peaked when I was 12, and like any self-respecting major dramatic artist, I started shooting a lot of heroin. I did make it through college, however, doing the rinse and repeat through inpatient treatment cycle many times. I'd get like three or even nine months clean, and then I'd get caught in my dorm room with a makeshift crack pipe, and back to treatment I'd go. After graduating, I became homeless because of drug use for the first time. More and more distance grew between me and my family, me and a sober life, or a positive identity or future. I was distancing from everything, everything that is but drugs. After a stint, a long stint, in treatment in 2012, I got a job on a small cruise boat in Alaska. This was it, the last place on earth I figured I'd be able to find drugs, in the middle of the frigid ocean. And this is when I met Alice, a nice and drug-free Juno girl in the wilds of Southeast, and she and I sparked a romantic thing that lasted two pretty tumultuous years. We eventually did break up, and I was back in Seattle, but we still talked every single day. As wide as my golf had grown with the rest of the sober and functioning world, that relationship became my tether. In the summer of 2015, that tether stretched pretty far, from a girl in graduate school in Juneau to a guy on a park bench in Seattle. At the beginning of that summer, I was working Argosy tours on Seattle's waterfront. You know, those cruises that look at Bill Gates' house and tell you how tall the Space Needle is in venti Starbucks drinks. I had rented a place, and things looked all right, but they really weren't. More quickly this time than any of the other times before, I started using again and pretty soon had walked away from the job, from the apartment, and from all my belongings. I was still talking every day on the phone to Alice, but she didn't know what was going on until the day I sold my phone for drugs. Of course, I planned to get another one right away, but when you're getting high, one day turns into two or three, and then pretty soon a whole week went by, and, and it was the first time in the years that I'd known her that we'd gone a whole week without contact. Of course, she was concerned by me being phoneless and dropping off the face of the earth. I guess, predictably, she called the phone that I'd sold and talked for a while to the clearly strung-out people that answered it. She caught on that I had relapsed. Afraid I might be dead, she messaged my Facebook contacts and talked to my family. She called Seattle-area jails and hospitals and nothing. I'd vanished. Things might have carried on this way until I was essentially too far gone to reach, Except one day, luckily, I was walking uptown in North Seattle and heard a voice call out from the side of the road. Yo, Luke! I stopped and watched the street user I knew, only by the name of Wolf, climbing out the 12-inch opening to a Salvation Army clothing donation bin. Why'd your face plastered all over the city, man? He handled me a crumpled up piece of paper that, lo and behold, had several photos of me printed on it and the words, Have you seen me? And Luke, please call me, I'm worried. Smaller, at the bottom, was Alice's cell number. Alice had come to look for me, and she had made missing person signs. This was so trippy. It was one of those moments you want to pinch yourself in case you're dreaming. I immediately put together that I needed to make contact and ran to the Northgate branch of the Seattle Public Library to check my email. Of course, there were about 10 emails from Alice documenting her increasing panic and plan to come to Seattle. 
I felt immediate and overwhelming emotions. The feeling that someone actually cared for me, followed by deep shame that I'd worried her so much, and pride that she would do something so heroic, followed by serious pain and dramatic embarrassment that I'd my life off so hard. I emailed her immediately and said, I'm here, I'm alive, and I really, really hope you're still in town. Only five minutes after hitting send, I got her response. She was in the plane, on the tarmac, but her flight had literally just landed back in Juneau. For several days of the last 15, the distance between us, unbeknownst to either of us, may have only been a block or two. And once again, in the space of just a couple of hours, it was 907 air miles. I did find a way to call her then, and learned about her adventures looking for me. She had gone around all the neighborhoods she knew I'd frequented, from my apartment in North Seattle, down the bus route to the waterfront. She bought cigarettes to give out and befriended street people to ask them if they'd seen me. She showed pictures to junkies and seedy hotel owners. She visited the Starbucks where I'd sold my phone and papered neighborhoods with flyers. She even visited all the needle exchanges and food missions. She actually did go to a lot of the right places, maybe just missing me. But after a few days and no positive signs, she started thinking her plan to walk around a city of millions until she bumped into me might not be realistic. She decided there was nothing else she could do but go home and try to live her life in this new reality of just not knowing. A few days and a couple missed flights later, I boarded my own plane to Juno. I had a three-month beard, cut-off jean shorts, mismatched flip-flops, and a backpack with nothing in it but a camelback full of Pepsi and three different types of deodorant sticks. I had definitely been strung out. Eventually, though, I did arrive in Juneau. The 907 miles between me and Alice diminished to zero, but I still had a long way to find myself back to myself. Today, I'm standing a good distance away from my last drug use, the farthest distance ever since picking it up as a teen. It's been a long, hard fight, but I've learned how very, very important it is to keep my distance between myself and mind-altering drugs. Our next storyteller is Summer Christensen. Summer is a lifelong Alaskan who recently moved back to Juneau after an eight-year hiatus. She is a mom of a sassy one-year-old redhead and wife to an exotic Canadian. She is a published writer and enjoys spending her free time reading and dreaming of all the travel should do when the days of COVID are behind us. In this story, she tells us why she started traveling in the first place. In August of 2012, I left my hometown of Juneau, Alaska for Buchan, South Korea, and I didn't know when or if I'd ever be coming back. After a whirlwind of a summer, I boarded an international flight in the Seattle airport and said goodbye to America and everything I knew. Now, earlier that summer, in June to be exact, I sat on my father's porch in northern Idaho. While the barn swallows flew in and out of their nest nearby, my dad awkwardly picked at his beer label and started the difficult conversation we had both been avoiding for months. This conversation would literally change the course of my life. At the time of this conversation, I was engaged to be married to a wonderful man. In a month or two, I would have his last name and I would be living an hour away from Portland, Oregon. As a recent graduate of UAS's education program, I would hopefully start my life fresh in a new place with a new teaching job and a new apartment and maybe even a new dog. Now, despite how beautiful the story sounded, 
there was a pretty obvious problem that everyone except myself seemed to see. My fiance Jonah was a deeply religious man. I'm not just talking about go to church on Sunday and believe in God type of Christian. I'm talking about was going to theology school because his family owned a Christian counseling center in northern Idaho and believed people spoke in tongues type of Christian. When we started dating back in college at the University of Idaho, I let him know that I wasn't religious. While I maybe believed in a higher power, a spiritual force of some sort, I didn't believe that there was one God that watched over us all and listened to everything we said. I grew up with a very Christian grandmother, and I knew that life of religion just wasn't for me. He promptly let me know that he wouldn't marry a woman who didn't believe in God, and that was that for the time being. After graduation in December, I decided to move back to Juneau to pursue my master's in teaching. Jonah and I decided to try our hand at long distance, and somewhere within the move, the distance, and my parents' divorce, I found God. Now, God had been hiding between the pages of a very worn and crappy Bible that I had been given years before. I started with the New Testament and was in awe at everything Jesus did. I wanted to be more like this guy, and Jonah, of course, couldn't have been happier. Things quickly progressed, and we were engaged before I knew it. At the way, 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 way too young age of 20, I was to be married to the love of my life, and everyone around me was terrified. My personality had changed. My interests went from traveling, volunteering, reading, and writing, hanging out with my friends, to God. I was a different person, or at least I was pretending to be. And while Jonah was a good man, a handsome man with a great sense of humor, a sharp wit, an intelligent man who would comfort me when life got too crazy, he was on a different life path than I was, or at least that's how my father put it on that porch in northern Idaho. Now let's take a moment. We're going to go all the way back to that porch and it was when my father asked, why are you going through us this, that I paused. I didn't have an answer. What was the point in getting married to this man who so strongly believed in something that I was so unsure of? For months, I had been questioning everything. I had been asking Jonah questions on a daily basis about the Bible, about God. I even once asked him about dinosaurs, and there were never any solid answers that I needed to be sure. After my father assured me that no one would be mad at me, well, except for maybe Jonah and his whole side of the family, I made the decision to call off the wedding, and the next day, before I met with Jonah to call off the wedding, I made the decision to break things off with him completely. Later that week, while I was walking down the streets of Moscow, Idaho, I bought a reference guide and it sat in the window display of my favorite bookshop. The title of the book was Teaching English Abroad, 2012, A Guide to Getting a Job. It was fate. I stayed up all night. I made lists of all the countries that I should research, and I ended up debating between Singapore and South Korea. 
After a couple weeks, I landed a job in Pucheon, South Korea, and I would be starting at the end of August. There is no time to think. There is no time to grieve this relationship of two years or what would have been my marriage. There was only really just time to move on. After a month of living abroad, I got a message from Jonah. While we had been talking sporadically, he finally sent me this long-winded one that asked me if there was still a chance for us to be together. I didn't know exactly how to respond. I thought about sending him something along the lines of, Did you know I live in Asia now? Or, I literally moved thousands of miles to get away from you. But instead, I sent him a polite no, to which he responded in another long-winded message that I needed to find Jesus. So I quickly deleted all of his contact information then and knew that we needed to keep our distance. Our next storyteller this evening is Angela Noon. Angela was born and raised in Onalaska, Wisconsin. She received a degree in English from the University of Minnesota and a master's in education from the College of St. Catherine in St. Paul, Minnesota. She moved to Juneau in 2002 and has been teaching ever since her arrival at the University of Alaska Southeast, at Floyd Dryden Middle School, and now at Thunder Mountain High School. She is a mother to two children, Audrey and Oren. Her hobbies include hiking, reading, knitting, and watching people get attacked by birds on YouTube. She loves teaching. She loves her students, despite some of the details you might hear in this, her first Mudrooms story. I am a teacher. Many of you are wondering what I do during this year of distance education. I'll get to that. I will. But I want to go back in time a bit to my days before COVID to help you understand what I learned through these isolating, rainy, and depressing months. I currently teach at Thunder Mountain High School in the English department, but for about 15 years, I taught kids between the ages of 11 and 13. Middle school is an extremely social environment that doesn't allow for physical or emotional space. It's full of laughter, high fives, hugs, and sometimes tears. It's noisy and it's messy. Middle school teachers are like Spartans. They are the badasses. They go to school each day knowing it's do or die. You win the battle or go home on your shield. Middle school students can take down an adult within minutes if they find your weak spot. From the opening of the school doors in the morning, the sound of those awkward, hormonal, excitable kids is deafening. Middle school students don't have volume control. If it's worth saying, it's worth shouting. And if it's worth shouting one time, it's worth shouting over and over and over again, especially if it's just a random noise. I have an 11-year-old son who does the same thing at home. I remind him often the noises he makes are like the ones that caused me to stop teaching sixth grade. Those noises break people, I tell him. I loved my connections with my students and families. I went to school each day excited and happy. Each and every day I laughed and felt joy with my students and colleagues, but I was exhausted at the end of most days. If only the kids could just be quieter. If the students would just do their work. If they would just remember to bring a pencil to class. If only. In the spring of 2019, I transferred to Thunder Mountain. Teaching high school resembles middle school in many ways. There is still quite a bit of noise, but students tend to remember their pencils and have more control of their bodies. 
They also tend to shower more, which came as a wonderful surprise after my years in the middle school trenches. They are a bit more mature and are starting to figure out who they are, and they still want a connection with their teachers. But instead of getting blindsided by a charging bear hug, I might get a fist bump and a, hey, noon. Students might come into your classroom for lunch, but instead of a free-for-all, they want conversation. The start of class is always a flurry of activity. Students hug, fist bump, dance, and move to their seats with greetings to me and their friends. There's usually the struggle of getting them to put their phones away and take the earbuds out. Class is busy and fires need to be put out. Too many of them want to go to the bathroom, which is code for wandering the halls to check on friends or have a snack. It's important to look at their faces to see if they're having a good or a bad day. What's the mood of the class? Can we do group work today or will that be chaos? A look around the room at their faces will usually give me some indication. In one class period, I can move around the room and make a connection with each and every student. Again, the sounds are everywhere. Voices chattering back and forth, chairs moving across the floor, pencils sharpening, computers clicking. So much sound and movement and activity happening all around me. And then COVID hit. I've been teaching virtually since the middle of March. Moving from a busy and noisy classroom to a virtual Zoom room had its challenges. Last spring, I streamlined my lessons and did my best. At least I had the previous several months to develop relationships with my students. I knew 140 names, faces, and personalities. We got through the spring the best we could, hoping we could return to a normal in-person school once the summer was over. That was not to be. All those times I wished for silence, for quiet, for peace in my classroom, were about to bite me squarely on the butt. These days, I start working at 7.30 each morning, making sure the slideshows, interactive lessons, and assignments are ready to go. I start teaching at 9.15 a.m. and end my last Zoom at 3.45 p.m. Beyond that, I may work a few more hours making sure the next day's lessons are created and uploaded, class activities are prepared, and I also try to fit in some grading if there's time. Online teaching has nearly doubled the time I spend planning. I probably stare at a computer screen for about 10 hours every day. At the start of each class, my eyes scan the screen searching out a face, any face. My freshmen are the kindest to me, with a few kids who have their cameras on. In other classes, often the only face I see staring back at me is my own. And let me tell you, it does not look good. I look like someone whacked me with a stick. My cheeks have seemingly dropped an inch down my face. My eyes have appeared to sink into two pits with the perimeter of wrinkles around them. I look gray, tired. It's not just the lack of faces, but the lack of voices that creates a sort of deafening silence. I fill this silence with my own chatter and attempts to get the students to respond to me. I call their names, I sing songs, I deploy my best dance moves. I pose a series of would you rather questions on my visuals to get students to respond. I've seen videos of teachers wearing costumes and doing puppet shows to get their students' attention and garner responses. I've heard that some teachers have started to put stickers on their faces whenever a student responds verbally in the class. Each time someone contributes, another sticker goes on your face. I re recently began plotting my own way to try to encourage students to talk. I created a variety of mouths, ears, noses, eyebrows, and other facial features to stick on my face each time a different student speaks up. Yes, I am willing to turn myself into a literal Miss Potato Head. A chat box has replaced the human voice in many of my classes. 
In some ways, this provides a space for kids to participate who may not have felt comfortable speaking aloud. However, it has become the default method of communication. Often, students don't even respond to the group, but only to me privately, so it defeats the purpose of a group debate, conversation, or discussion. I end up reading the messages in the chat just to break the silence and allow for students to hear the ideas being presented because the students do have great ideas and observations. Experts in communication will tell you that around 90% of communication is nonverbal. Body language, facial expression, eye movements, all of it plays a role in human beings being able to connect with each other. Our voices, of course, add exponentially to this. The noise and commotion of my earlier classrooms provided me with the input I needed to be an effective teacher and for students to engage in their learning with me and each other. Now, silence. So much silence. Movement, facial expressions, voices, the poetry and music of a classroom. Up next is Rebecca Braun. Rebecca came to Juno in 1994 for a summer job and has since worked as a teacher, journalist, policy advisor, and consultant. She has two kids and is grateful for the loving support of the community. Here's her story. I met Rachel two weeks after I got to Juno on July 4th, 1994. We actually met in line for a free shuttle boat that was ferrying people across the channel from downtown Juneau to Douglas. I was with friends and she was with her one-year-old son. The line took forever and by the time we got on the boat, we'd missed the Douglas parade, but Rachel and I had become friends. I was charmed by her flimsy city stroller and her stilettos and her immediate and animated sharing of her life story. I was a recent transplant from Boston and she from LA and we got into a sort of Seinfeld-like melee with the ladies managing the flow of people onto the boat, you know, where we were like, I don't think you do understand what a reservation is or we'd be on that boat. It horrifies me now, but I'm going to blame Rachel for getting me amped up. All of this might have tipped me off to a certain lack of, shall we say, balance, but Rachel was compelling. Through the years, we remained friends, though not always close. She had an intensity that could draw you in and repel you with equal force. She once walked into the yacht club for an event, saw me in the entryway, and shoved me up against the wall, shouting, You will not! I was totally bewildered. She shoved me again and said, Don't you dare go to law school or I will kill you. Apparently, she had heard that I had taken the law school admission test. Rachel was a lawyer and hated her profession. She hated a lot of things. Top of the list, as I learned in line that 4th of July, was her son's father. He was some kind of doctor, and when she got pregnant, they made some kind of arrangement that involved her having full custody and control of the child with time-limited but generous financial support from BioDad, a.k.a. At some point, Rachel decided her son needed a religion. Not religion, mind you, but a religion. And she started shopping for one. She herself was virulently anti-theist, and she ranted to me one day about how the Unitarians were clearly trying to brainwash her son because they had mentioned God. I didn't think this search was going to go very well, but I held my tongue. I wasn't sure what to think later when she ended up finding a sense of home in my own religious community, the Jews. I think maybe was Jewish, but I might be making that up. 
By the time the baby in the stroller was 11, I largely kept my distance from Rachel. She was sassy and loud and tended to find fault with just about everyone and everything. I loved her brash irreverence, but found her exhausting. She had been engaged to a mutual friend who had broken it off. Except for the fact that he was patient and she required patience, they were a poor match. But Rachel was devastated. I think she had never found her place and never really made peace with her discontent. One day in the middle of winter, I was running on a treadmill at the gym when a friend came up. Have you heard about Rachel? My intestines tightened. I jumped off the treadmill before I could fall off. What? I said, heard what? We walked over to a private part of the gym behind a wall. I can still picture it. She's missing, my friend said. No one had seen her since Sunday, and her car was found out the road. Inside, I morphed into the scream. Hands over ears, everything was swirling around me, and I shouted, No! without making a sound. It took weeks to find her. The official search was called off, but my friend, who had been her fiancé, was determined. He scoured the woods on foot and scanned the shoreline by boat. And one day he found her in a sleeping bag in the forest, asleep for eternity with an empty bottle of pills. By that time, the shell-shocked bio dad had jetted over from Europe to take custody of the child he barely knew. I met him in a small gathering and shared a few stories. I told him his son had been well-loved by the community and by his mother. I didn't tell him what she called him. I told him about how his son ran races with Southeast Roadrunners. I didn't tell him about the heated annual meeting that followed his son's entry into a notorious race across the channel and back in which an adult runner had had to give up his own race to make sure that Rachel's son got through the frigid, waist-deep water safely. Solo parenting's hard. Rachel needed the community. In that moment, meeting who did not seem so terrible after all, I was awash with sadness and regret. I had kept my distance from Rachel, and now the distance was unbridgeable. This is not to say I blame myself or anyone else for Rachel's death. I don't know if I could have changed anything for her, but I felt I could change myself. In those moments when I have to make a choice to reach out or to retreat, to really see someone or to look away, I wanted to make the choice to connect. And I have, I have a happier story a story of not looking away, but keeping someone close when they felt the pull of the abyss. That's a story for another time. It ended much better, and it affirms what I know. Humans are not solitary animals. We can die of loneliness and heartache. We can also save each other with our presence. Looking back at my own life, my regrets are made of absence and distance and disconnects. The rewards are made of drawing and holding close, even when it's hard, and maybe especially when it's hard. You're listening to Mudrooms, a storytelling series that highlights voices and experiences from our community here in Juneau, Alaska. 
Tonight's theme is keep your distance, and unlike our regular live events, all our presenters have indeed kept their distance, recording their stories separately at home. Our next event is scheduled for broadcast on 104.3 FM KTOO in Juneau, Alaska, on the 22nd of February. It will be organized around the theme, The Goods Are Odd. If you would like to contribute a story to that or other future Mudrooms events, please visit our website at mudrooms.org, where you can sign up to tell a story or listen to our full archive from the past decade. If you would like to make a donation to the beneficiary for this Mudrooms event, please visit junopreschool.org where you can make a contribution to the Juno Co-op Preschool in downtown Juno. They've got a PayPal link. They've also got an address if you'd like to mail them a check. And all donations are, once again, tax deductible. For our next story, we're going to hear from Shelly Delaney. Shelly was born and raised in southern Indiana. She moved to Juneau in 2014 for a change of scenery and a job with the state of Alaska. She now works as a producer at KTOO Public Media and is a regular host of the radio talk show Juneau Afternoon on 104.3 FM. This is Shelly's first Mudroom story. In Mexico, they call it La Gripa. And when I arrived at the home of the family I was there to visit, they all had it. It had been about a year since I had seen them. And when I when they greeted me, when I got there, they, they greeted me with handshakes. And when they stuck out their hands, I shook them. And when they offered us food and drink, I accepted. And they didn't have running water, so I couldn't wash my hands. It wasn't long before I woke up and realized I too had La Gripa. Big surprise. Now, it was 2006 in Mexico. I don't recall a lot of public health messaging around stopping the spread of cold and flu, like stay home when you're sick, keep your distance. But um, it was 2006. It, I was in my 20s. I only had a week to collect my field data anyway, so I did something else I shouldn't have done. I kept working. And I, and it was the worst cold I ever had. <laughs> but in Mexico, la gripa is usually just a common cold. It's a nuisance, not serious. And they also don't really rely too much on Western medicine to treat it. So um, it was funny because I was going out and meeting people and talking with them and I was visibly very sick. And they all, um, they scolded me for being out at night. They said the night air made it worse. They also uh, told me to avoid eating cold, cold foods like tomatoes and avocados, even though those are staples in the Mexican diet. They were on every plate of food we, we got. But uh, that I could follow that one because I wasn't hungry anyway after I got sick. All of them agreed, though, I needed to try this stuff called baparu. And I didn't know what it was. It was clear to me that it was a substance you use when you're ill, but I'd never heard the word before, baparu. My Spanish was pretty good. I just didn't understand, and I thought maybe it was something that they had in Mexico that we don't have in the States. But I, I soon realized that what I actually needed was 
antibiotics. And in Mexico, you can just go to the pharmacia and ask for that sort of thing. You don't need a prescription. So that's what I did. And as I was getting my meds, as kind of an afterthought, at the last minute, I asked the uh, pharmacist if he will, if they had any baparu. And so as he hands me my pills, he also gets me a tin of vaporub. Vaporub. Baparu is a Spanish pronunciation. <laughs> now, I've never known vaporub to work when I've had a cold, but my mom swears by it. She always made me use it when I was a kid, and mom and all of Mexico can't be wrong, so I, I bought it, and I thought at the very least it would be a comfort to smear some on my chest at night. <laughs> and then we headed home. So at this point in the trip, it had been almost a week. I was about as sick as I was going to get. It was at the end of the day, a uh, long day, long week, and I was pretty tired and I just wanted to go to bed. I was with my two field assistants, Matt and Stacy, and we we're driving back to our lodging, but Matt asked if we can make a stop on the way. Um, you know, we had, we had definitely been taking advantage of the town, which was very cute. Puerto Escondido, it's on the coast of Oaxaca, and we'd been out before I got sick, a couple nights before we went out and we... Um, Matt really loved the music at this one place we were at, and he asked the bartender for a copy of uh, a CD, for a copy of the CD he um, was playing. It was these Spanish covers of Beatles tunes. And in a couple of more days, we had a big road trip ahead of us back to Oaxaca City. So Matt wanted to get the CD to play in the car. So I agreed, and it's not a very big place, this town we were in. All three of us thought we knew exactly how to get back to that bar. But uh, as it turns out, we didn't. <laughs> so Stacy's driving. Matt's like giving her directions. I'm in the back seat, just hanging on by a thread. And we go down the wrong road. And we re all kind of realize at the same time it's the wrong road. Um, there's no bars or anything around us, really. It was pretty empty. No people, no activity. And Stacy stops and starts to turn around. But at that moment, we realize that we're on we're on sand and we're stuck. The vehicle is stuck. So didn't look like we were stuck too bad at first. And we get out, we try a couple things. But 15, 20 minutes goes by. We've made no progress. In fact, we're stuck worse than we were before. And I didn't know what we were going to do. I just get hit with this wave of panic and despair. The vehicle's not even hours. It belongs to our advisor. She's hours away in Oaxaca City. We had cell phones, but no coverage. And, and we I didn't know who we would call anyway. But then I look up and then out of nowhere, this, this pack of about half a dozen dudes materializes and they're just sprinting towards us. And they've got half of them have implements like shovels in their hands and the guy in the lead he just has the most determined look on his face and they skid to a halt in front of us and they're like we're here to help and I was so incredibly grateful so I was the only one who spoke Spanish out of the three of us so I just get behind the wheel and they get right to work telling me what to do it's this combination of barking orders and mansplaining and arguing amongst themselves one's telling me to go backwards one's tell telling me to go forward one's saying no we need to dig the wheels out more i'm trying my best to do some of the things that they tell me one at a time nothing's working so they all kind of look at each other and then ask me if i'll get out and let the man drive matt my field assistant and at first i'm like hey <laughs> No, I'm just as good of a driver, and Matt no habla espanol anyway. 
but I, I do it. And so Matt gets behind the wheel and I stand kind of nearby to translate, but as it turns out, they didn't need me. They somehow start communicating ombre to ombre at that point and they, they get us out and I am just so relieved. That's all I cared about. So, you know, in the, uh, the afterglow of our victory there, we do celebrate the success. We divvied up all the beers we had in the car and handed those out to the guys that wanted one. And we also, um, gave them all the cash we had on us, but none of them really asked for anything in the way of compensation. You know, they, they just wanted to help us out. Uh, one guy though, he did say like, well, if you don't mind, could you give me a ride home? And he points up this hill that we can see from the beach we're at to his house and um, we're like sure no problem so we all pile back in the car dudes in the front seat Matt's still driving I'm in the back with Stacy and uh, we start to take this guy home now the road we got stuck on was deceptive we didn't know that it was um, we didn't it, it looked fine and we didn't know until we got stuck that it wasn't fine. But this next road was just a, did not look fine. It was visibly a bad idea. We start up it, it's like two dirt ruts in a field of really tall grass, left, right, and center, and it's littered with crap, and it's starting to get dark out, and Matt doesn't see it, but he ran over something, and all of a sudden the car is stuck again. It won't, won't go. <laughs> Um, but the guy who's with us, he saves us again. He hops out. He he takes the wheel off the car. Matt had run over like the skeleton of a mattress, so it was no no fabric or padding, but a bunch of rusted out springs and metal and wire and stuff. This guy just kind of like single handedly wrestles it off the wheel, tosses it aside, puts the wheel back on the car, and we are back in business. So we take him home. I don't remember if we picked up that stupid CD or not, <laughs> but I do remember that finally at the end of a long day, at the end of a long week, after all of that bad luck getting stuck, I got to go home and get in bed with my Baparu. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Corin Hughes Scangies. Corin is a sometimes comedian, sometimes filmmaker, and sometimes writer that bartends. He's lived off and on in Juno since 2005. Here's Corin. I was on a date once with a girl in Charleston, West Virginia, back in 2004. It was during the city's annual regatta, which is a festive weekend where they shut down the main boulevard that runs along the Canal River, which cuts through town. There's food trucks, live music, rides, games, you know, ton of people, boats on a river. It's a summertime thing. We uh, agreed to first meet up at the downtown Chili's, which was my idea because I have a, a crazy love for the Chili's chicken crispers. I know it's not an impressive thing to love, but it's one of my favorite going out meals. You know, So what? It's not a showstopper. It's delicious. It's 10 bucks. It's uh, soft breaded chicken tenders with seasoned French fries, a great honey mustard sauce you could dip either one of them in, you know, you choose, I do both. But it also comes with a perfect corn on the cob. It's perfect in that it's not a whole corn on the cob with the wilty ends or sad, weird little smunched kernels. It's just a four or five inch middle segment. It's, it's, it's like the filet mignon of corn cobs. Anyway, I got it, but because I was on a date, I preemptively boxed up the corn to go. 
you can't really eat corn on the cob while trying to look cool in front of somebody, you know, making eye contact on it while, while you while you gnaw and and, and ask them what kind of music they like. Like no, especially when you're already kind of a a shy nerdy twenty year old, which I was one. So we paid, and I took my little to go box corn, and we walked to the river to check out the events. While we were hanging out there, we ran into a friend of hers. So the three of us kind of palled around together for a bit. And I was asked by both of them at different times why I didn't just eat the corn or throw it away rather than, you know, carry it around all afternoon. They teased me about it. And I'll admit, a couple of times I did think this was silly, you know, silly to keep hanging on to it. I was starting to feel self-conscious about the fact that they both knew it was just a Chili's corn cob segment that I was not eating while still ordering like funnel cakes with them and the like. It, it seemed like I was a, a, a hoarder of food scraps. I almost tossed it, but I didn't. You know, it's good. I wanted it later when no one was looking, you know, when I could really enjoy it. It got dark and so naturally it turned to more of a beers flowing, adult, not so much a family kind of event vibe. And we decided to call it. She had parked in the, the, Paul, the mall parking garage and uh, like many downtown city garages, it could be a little sketchy at night. So I walked her to her car. She offered to drive me home, but I declined. I wanted to look cool to her, like I was unafraid to take to the streets alone at night. Uh, we said goodbye, and I exited the garage and walked toward the, the back side of the mall, which was not really well lit, so as to not be seen by her when she drove out. You know, it'd be less cool if she saw me shuffling along, carrying my little Chili's to-go box that I caught grief for all night after I just declined the ride. Like, no, I needed to just say goodnight and then mysteriously disappear into the dark like I was Jason Bourne. So I rounded around the back of the mall and I, uh, I saw a group of about eight or nine teenagers that were headed up toward me in the opposite direction. Four or five guys, three or four gals, no more than 15 years old, max. I began to pass by them, carrying my corn, minding my business, when out of nowhere, my ears rang out and I stumbled forward. My jaw flared up with pain and it quickly registered with me that I was just punched by a kid. I turned around to see the larger boy of the group who was squared up looking at me. Uh, he was the largest of them, but he's still shorter than me. But scary, like mean looking. He, he picture like an even uh, more evil looking Augustus Gloop. I asked a rhetorical question of him that could be abbreviated with the letters WTF. Some of them laughed. He stepped forward to me and my corn that I was still surprisingly still holding. And uh, I saw the group now almost forming all around me. I was angry. And as much as I would have liked to have been able to play a, a, a sick version of whack-a-mole, in that moment, I also then was scared. Uh, from behind me, as I stepped back, I heard a couple of other young boys down the block yell out. It wasn't a yell of shock or concern. It was more like Ghostbusters, like when Janine, the secretary, informs the guys of their first call. The two boys were now running toward me uh, with their fists cocked, and I, I froze a moment. But then I decided to actually run towards one of them, and uh, I, I ducked at the last minute, causing his punch to just catch a bit of my forehead and glance off. And I still had the corn. I carried it and continued quickly down the block as they yelled out and laughed and didn't pursue, or so I thought. All the fear and, and anger in me was immediately replaced with shame and embarrassment. And then, of course, a lot more anger. 
After a brief moment of trying to process everything I, 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 that just happened, I realized that the littlest of the group had actually decided to follow me, all by himself. He was just a few steps behind while holding a cell phone to his head like he was on a call. It was weird. I stopped and turned around to face him with a look encompassing all of the dissatisfaction I had for the night. He stopped, just staring up at me a few feet away, but grinning like he knew something I didn't. The group called out to him to come back and leave me alone, and after our mini standoff, I turned and continued on, assuming it was just the final ego-destroying taunt to send me on my way. But nope, I then heard quick little tiny hurried footsteps and turned just in time to see a small, bony, angsty fist clock me right in the bridge of the nose. Strike three, which also marked the end of the road for the corn on the cob. The to-go box opened up, setting sail to the corn, which flew up and into the street, rolling slowly to the curb. I yelled out, are you kidding me? As he laughingly then ran back up the street to join his crew. I threw the box down on the ground. At that point, it honestly felt really good to be rid of it. Across the street, there was an older group of teenage goths, which I looked over to with a look of like, can you believe this? Also look at that corn in the street. To which they responded with a solid, we're not going to make eye contact with you. We saw nothing. But yeah, also look at that corner in the street. I felt the blood start to trickle down from the new cut at the top of my nose. And in that moment, I did have a fleeting thought that maybe actually did look a bit like Jason Bourne now. I started walking home again, empty handed, but with a mental souvenir that makes me laugh. And uh, I haven't had a Chili's chicken crisper since. That's a lie. I uh, I totally have, and I still really enjoy it. Our final storyteller this evening is Robert Bowles. This is Robert's second Mudrooms talk. The first was last February, which was the last Mudrooms event with a live audience. Robert is still working on becoming the most interesting 85-year-old he can be, and he's got a number of years left in which to achieve that goal. Since coming to Juno, he has relearned how to ice skate, he's played hockey, he's become fairly proficient at downhill skiing, tried the downhill ski race at Eagle Crest, he has quote-unquote raced in the buckwheat and tour of Anchorage cross-country ski races. He didn't score a lot of goals in hockey, and he's never been on a first-place team or finished first in a race at all, but surprisingly to him, he did achieve a first in March of this year. All last winter, Liz and I were cross-country skiing and thinking about participating in the Tour of Anchorage 25-kilometer ski race. We were in pretty good shape. But at the last minute, we decided that we would fly up and see the star of the Iditarod because she's really into sled dogs. And then after that, we would fly up to Fairbanks and do some cross-country skiing. I've never been to Fairbanks, and I'd like to see it. With a little bit of trepidation, we got on the airplane on March 6th to fly up to Anchorage. We took disinfectant wipes and wiped down the windows and the armrests and the tray tables. We were being pretty careful, but masks weren't a thing back then. We took the taxi from the airport to the hotel, checked into the Voyager, took our bags up the elevator. Then we went right back down, went outside and went walking around downtown Anchorage saw some people doing a blanket toss and just soaked in the atmosphere. Then we realized first Friday was going on 
and we walked down the street and unlike Juno, nobody was doing any social distancing. People were shaking hands, even hugging each other, listening to music in crowded stores. Then we went out to a really nice restaurant. It was crowded, but we were seated at a table by ourselves and we thought, you know, there's been no cases in Anchorage. There's, there's been a few cases in California and Washington and way off in New York City. We went back to the hotel. We got in the elevator and there was a really interesting woman who told us she was riding with one of the mushers during the ceremonial start. We went up and down the elevator a couple of times with her, spent five or ten minutes talking. Then we went back up to our room and we looked at each other and said, you know, that might not have been too smart. She was from California. They've had some coronavirus cases down there. Next morning, we watched the ceremonial start of the Iditarod and we were by ourselves most of the day. When we went out to eat, we went to a pizza place. We were the only customers in there. The next morning, we got up really early, took a taxi to the airport, flew up to Fairbanks. We rented a car, checked into our Airbnb, went immediately to REI, a nice woman there, gave me a map and told me all about the cross-country skiing in the area. We spent a lot of time cross-country skiing, out on the trails by ourselves. We were being distant. We did go to a music jam at Ivory Jacks, but nobody was doing any social distancing there. And when nobody's doing it, it's pretty easy to fall back in with what everyone else is doing. We did get some questions. Are they going to have folk festival this year? I hear they're starting to cancel things. Are they gonna cancel folk festival? We said we really didn't know, but they did cancel it the next day. We were having so much fun, we decided to stay through the weekend. We drove down to Chena Hot Springs for the evening. When I walked in the dressing room, I thought, oh, there's a lot of people in here. It's a little more crowded than I'm comfortable with. I changed clothes quickly and went outside. We enjoyed the hot spring and felt pretty safe out there with the, the breeze. When I went back inside, I changed clothes quickly again. We went to the coffee shop and one of the guys that worked there said something to the effect that, there's been a lot of people sick this year, the flu or something. Liz and I looked at each other. That doesn't sound good. We got back in the car and drove back to Fairbanks, back to our Airbnb. We had most of our meals by ourselves up there, but we did go to a few small restaurants. Even there, though, we were sitting pretty much by ourselves, being distant. We discovered Birch Hill Ski Area, and on Saturday, we met some new friends shook hands with them. I later was told that we were the last people that she shook hands with. On Sunday, we flew back to Juneau. There was a really sick guy on the plane. He was coughing and just didn't look healthy. Liz and I huddled together and tried not to breathe any more than we had to. By this time, we had heard that there were shortages of toilet paper. So as soon as we got in the car, we exited the airport. We went to Fred Meyer's looking for toilet paper. Sure enough, there was none. We ran into a few friends. We stayed away from them. They stayed away from us. But we did talk a bit from six feet or more away. We left Fred Meyer's with no toilet paper, but with a lot of extra food, just in case. We weren't even sure what the just in case was. I felt fine for two days after getting back. People at work were 
staying fairly far apart. Tuesday night, we stayed up really late to watch the finish of the Iditarod as the first musher came across the finish line in Nome. I also got up early. Went into work and I felt tired, but I didn't think that was unusual. I'd stayed up late, gotten up early. I decided I would go home, take a nap, and then go back into work. But when I got home, I didn't feel better. I felt worse. My body started to ache. I called work and told him I wouldn't be back in and probably wouldn't be in the next day. And then I called my doctor and said, you know, I think I've got the flu. I've compared all the symptoms to the coronavirus and looks like I've got the flu. But I think I should probably get tested because they've had seven cases up in Fairbanks. So on Friday, I drove out to my doctor at family practice. The nurse came out in her protective gear, put the Q-tip up my nose until it touched my brain. And then I drove back home. I thought it would take until Tuesday or Wednesday before I would get a result. But on Sunday night, I got a call from a woman who said something like, are you William Robert Bowles? And I said, yes. And she said, congratulations, you're Juneau, Alaska's first coronavirus patient. Thanks for listening to Mudrooms, and thanks once again to all our storytellers this evening. You're listening to Mudrooms on KTOO 104.3 FM in Juneau, Alaska. We have one more broadcast coming up for our abbreviated and socially distanced 10th season. And if you would like to record a story for that, please check us out at mudrooms.org. Our theme in February will be The Goods Are Odd. Rich Moniak provided audio production for tonight's show, and we received additional support from Mudroom's board members, Alita Buss, Kristen Rankin, Jim Fitzer, and my co-host, Jeff Smith. For Mudroom's, I'm David Noon. Good night. Good night.